It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com. Hello, I'm Alice Su, The Economist Senior China Correspondent, and I'm here with my co-host, David Rennie, our Beijing Bureau Chief. This is the second episode in our two-part look at China's Belt and Road Initiative, a decade on since it began. Last week, I went to Laos to look at an example of the Belt and Road Initiative and to find out who benefited more, Laos or Beijing. And for this second episode, I'm taking you to Lanzhou, a city on the ancient Silk Road in the west of China. This week, we're asking, how does the Belt and Road look from inside China? And what will the next 10 years of the project look like? This is Drumta from The Economist. Hello, David. How are you? I am a happy man because it is autumn in Beijing, which is not only a good season for weather, but it is when the fruit stands have one of my favorite fruits, which is something that looks a lot like a very tiny apple, I guess, a crab apple. Wait, you mean the little green ones? No, they look like little crab apples, but they're basically miniature apples. And I've heard so many different names for them. And every year I have this argument with the Chinese fruit sellers because I say, can I have some of those very small apples? And they say, that is not an apple. <laughs> My local fruit seller calls it a naidza. Yeah, I was just looking this up and I see a Chinese article that says, I always thought it was an apple, but actually it's not. <laughs> like, I always thought it was called pinguo, but actually its real name is shaguo. I tell you, if you want to have arguments with fruit sellers, this is the one to get into. Maybe we should ask our listeners. So any listeners who've lived in northern China and to eat these tiny, sour, but delicious crab apples about a couple of weeks before regular apples arrive in the markets, what did you call them? We'll report back. Okay, I look forward to those responses. But yes, it is lovely to finally have the seasons turning here in Taiwan. Finally, the humidity has lifted and mango season is over, sadly. And we don't have apples coming in, but I need to go and check actually what we have now, now that it's the beginning of fall. So David, last week we were talking about the Belt and Road. We went to Laos and we discussed what the Belt and Road looks like from a host country's perspective. This week, we're going to talk about how the Belt and Road looks from its starting point inside China. That's right. And because it's the 10-year anniversary of the launch of the Belt and Road, I thought it'd be interesting to go to a Chinese city that a decade ago thought that it had a chance of transforming its economic prospects by latching onto this new big campaign of Xi Jinping's. And that led me to Lanzhou, which is, as you know, Alice, the capital of Gansu, which is one of China's poorest provinces way out west. But because Lanzhou had been a historic stop on the old camel caravans heading out on the Silk Road, Local officials 10 years ago, they were sure that they were going to be booming again. And they talked about having sort of foreign countries opening consulates and they were going to take off as a Belt and Road hub. And even though there are places where trains leave for, say, Europe or Central Asia from Lanzhou, actually the boom never really happened. 
Huh. I'm quite curious to hear what you found there. I mean, I really love Lanzhou. I spent quite a bit of time there in the past because there's a lot of Hui Muslims there who also have a connection to the ancient Silk Road because they're basically ethnically Chinese, but they're also Muslim because their ancestors were traders who came from Central Asia and the Middle East. And my strongest impression of Lanzhou, though, is that I always remember going to the river there and seeing that they have these special rafts that are made out of inflated sheepskins, I think, and they blow them up like balloons and tie them together and make these rafts and you can get on that raft. I don't know if they did that in Silk Road times, but it's an ancient mode of transportation. Yeah, I hate to disappoint, but actually when you go to the Yellow River now, it's very loud speedboats uh. for tourists <laughs> roaring oh. up and down. No more sheepskin. So I went to the edge of Lanzhou to a logistics park, which has been in the news in Chinese state media. Every time you see those stories where you see a photograph of a train that looks like it's getting married because it has like a red ribbon and decorations and a big sign saying that this train is going from Lanzhou all the way to Germany or to Spain. Several of those photographs have appeared in state media in the last few years, and they're always from the same international rail depot on the edge of Lanzhou, a place called Dongchuan. So I thought that that would be a good place to just take the pulse of China, because obviously the economy is slowing and people are getting a bit anxious. And so do they feel that the Belt and Road is a win for them or not? Hmm. And who did you meet there at Dongchuan? So one of the friendliest people I met was a guy called Mr. Su, who drives tourists around. And I met him at this, frankly, not very exciting tourist attraction, which is on the far side of that Dongchuan train depot. It's an old merchant street with some Qing Dynasty buildings that is technically a kind of ancient Silk Road merchant street. And Mr. Su told me he'd taken some Chinese tourists there because their domestic flight home had been cancelled, there'd been a typhoon, and they'd seen all the interesting things to do anywhere near Lanzhou. So he thought, well, I'll take them here. So he's a pretty honest <laughs> guy, it has to be said. Okay. And when we got talking about the Belt and Road, he told me straight out that because I'm a Westerner, I probably couldn't understand why the Belt and Road is such a good thing. Wow, so Mr. Su is saying that it seems to him that a lot of Westerners have prejudice or misunderstandings about the Belt and Road, and maybe it's because they have different cultural backgrounds or upbringings, but they look at the Belt and Road and they think China wants to be aggressive with this. But from ancient times, China hasn't been like that. That's right. Mr. Su is convinced that China is, in fact, exceptional in its generosity. Okay, so here Mr. Su is saying Chinese people are kind of special in that they basically go along with national policies. And it's very different from Western people. Western people will think about how is this thing going to affect me individually? But Chinese people have a spirit of sacrifice. And David, what is he saying with that description of willingness to sacrifice? Is he implying that even if the economy is slowing, we're willing to go along with this policy as long as the government wants it? Well, what I was asking him was whether he felt the Belt and Road had been good for that area of China, whether it had been good for Chinese people or whether maybe the main beneficiaries are foreigners. And you heard him say that Chinese people are very sort of generous and self-sacrificing. But he did then start to say that, yes, the Chinese economy is slowing and struggling. And he's not exactly sure why it's a good idea to lend all this money to faraway places. 
，好像也没有必要把大把的钱去花到国外，甚至很远的，比方像非洲这样的地方。So he's saying, well, as an ordinary person, I don't really think it's necessary to go spending lots of money in really faraway places like Africa. It was a classic conversation with a friendly, honest Chinese person because he did criticize the government, or sort of hinted. That maybe he wasn't that satisfied, but he was talking to a foreign journalist. He knew I was a foreign journalist, and so he was always kind of well. You know, maybe the leaders know stuff that we ordinary people don't. Us ordinary people, we just care about where our next meal comes from. And state leaders, they can see the big picture. Maybe we just have to go along with it. Yeah, I mean, I think that's something we've heard quite a lot about on Drum Tower: how ordinary people don't feel like they can affect grand state policies, so they just accept it, and it is what it is. But did Mr. Su say anything about? How the Belt and Road has helped Lanjo or affected his own life? Yeah, so he said that it had not helped as much as he had hoped. I think the impact is still there. The positive effects are still there. But if you say it's not very obvious, I don't think it's very obvious. Because it's located in the Northern Territory, I can say it's a transit route. There are many people who come and go. But the development is still there. But I don't think it's so fast. Yeah, so Mr. Su says for sure there is an impact on Lanzhou, but it's not very obvious. And part of that is because Lanzhou is so far inland, right, in China's northwest. And he says now it's a transportation hub, so there are people coming and going, and there is some local development, but it's not as fast as I imagined. And he wasn't the only person I talked to in Dongchuan, that international train depot. I met a retired scientific technician called Mrs. Luo, and she was really clear that. The Belt and Road is not only a good thing for the world, but it shows how China is now strong enough to help. China has this ability, to help each other. You see, even yesterday, the train was delayed. Who's bad? We can help. So Mrs. Luo is saying that China has this capacity now, and neighbors can help each other, and it's a good thing that China is helping other people. And Mrs. Luo was clear that she thinks that China is the biggest winner from the Belt and Road.、Hmm. And Alice, the final place I went to on that trip. Was to the Baitao Shan, this white pagoda mountain park right in the middle of Lanzhou, overlooks the Yellow River, and it's really spectacular. You've got this very steep hill with a little pagoda at the top, and then on the slopes you have shrines and temples. That's why you can hear a voice here of a Buddhist reading that was recorded playing out of this rather beautiful temple courtyard surrounded by trees. Oh, what is that jingling sound? That is a wind chime on the eaves of a temple, and just nearby there was this dancing area. Because you know that when I'm in a park, my big ambition is to find dancing pensioners. <laughs> and not only were there dancing pensioners, locals from Lanzhou, but although they were Han Chinese, they were dancing to Uyghur music because Xinjiang is not so very far away from Lanzhou. And did you talk to some of those dancing pensioners? I did. There was a guy who actually was really friendly. Came over and had a chat. Why do you like this Uyghur dance? This Uyghur dance is more peaceful, relaxed. Ah, it's very relaxed. It's basically the same. It's in Lanzhou, and it's very close to Lanzhou. It's very close to Xinjiang. It's very close. Oh, so you can hear this man saying he really likes the Uyghur music because it's cheerful and outgoing, and also because Lanzhou is in the northwest. It's very close to Xinjiang, and they have connections. Although I have to say, this scene makes me a little uncomfortable because 
it just takes me back to the last time I was in Xinjiang. And I remember being taken away from a village by Chinese officials who wanted to bring me to a town plaza and show me happy Han Chinese people dancing to Uyghur music as proof that there was ethnic harmony and everyone is happy here. Yeah, it's complicated. I think it is done with love. These Han Chinese pensioners were dressed in Uyghur costumes, but there is an element of cultural appropriation hanging over the whole scene. Yeah, and it's always part of this idea too, right, of the new Silk Road. Xinjiang is a big part of that. And that geography was supposed to be the key to Lanzhou hitching a ride on the express train of the Belt and Road, to borrow a phrase from Xi Jinping. When the Belt and Road was announced, and it was announced as a new Silk Road, you saw a lot of these Western provinces that had traditionally been on that route thinking that this was their payday. But the real growth has been in cities that are basically already prosperous, that are much closer to the coasts, like Chengdu or Zhengzhou. And Lanzhou is the capital of Gansu, as you know, Alice. And actually, the total foreign trade of Gansu in the last 10 years has actually fallen. So it's been passed by. And that pensioner I was talking to, the Uyghur music fan, he could see that lots of ordinary Chinese feel that actually they're suffering because of the economy. And so they're struggling a bit to understand the Belt and Road and generally what's happening to them economically. It's kind of funny because the music is so upbeat in the background. It's like, woo! But then you can hear that he's saying the economy is not doing well. It has to do with domestic reasons, global reasons. We, ordinary people, Lao Baixing, we don't really know why, but we're not doing well economically. Yeah, he was an interesting guy, actually, because he was wearing the classic uniform of a Chinese official, the white shirt, the black trousers, because he was very articulate about the macroeconomics of the Belt and Road at certain moments. And the long-term returns on these investments. So I said to him, you sound like a retired official. And he's like, no, no, I am just an ordinary worker. But I'm not (laughs) sure he was. And he had some quite strong views about how, as the economy starts to slow, that people in China are worrying about how long it takes to see a return on those very big capital investments to build things like brand new railway lines in places like Laos. Oh, really interesting. So here, this man is saying that the Belt and Road has shrunk, and he says China gave a lot of aid and investment to these developing countries, but after 10 years, it hasn't gotten a proportionate return. And he says, you know, like, however much money you give to all these foreign countries, we didn't get help back from them. And it's really clear when you talk to scholars who are experts in the Belt and Road, including people who advise the government in China on how to kind of sell this to Chinese public opinion, they do not deny, even when talking to a foreign journalist like me, that the public is getting scratchy about why all that money is being sent overseas. And you are seeing a shift in the way that the project is presented. So as you'll remember, Alice, for the last several years in China, most of the domestic propaganda aimed at Chinese people has been about how generous China is and all the amazing changes that Chinese money and Chinese infrastructure is bringing to neighboring countries. Like this CCTV state media report celebrating 10 years of the Belt and Road. Yeah, so this announcer is talking specifically about Central Asia and saying how in the last 10 years, these huge projects that were designed and built by Chinese companies have left these new marks in those countries and they've brought vast 
profound changes for the region's economy and its society. I mean, it's all very grand, and it's this vision of China doing good for the rest of the world. But do you think that narrative is now going to change? It is, and even one professor told me that it's controversial that foreign students get to come to Chinese universities on scholarships and get treated really well. And that's so interesting because remember all those foreign politicians saying, "Oh, China is trying to win a soft power competition with us by offering all these Belt and Road scholarships to people from Africa or people from South Asia." Actually, you talk to Chinese professors now, and they're going, "You know, where I am in this university, some of the Chinese students they're not that happy about it, and some of them are open that the propaganda is going to have to change." And start stressing the benefits to Chinese people. Yeah, that is really interesting, and it speaks to me about the gap between maybe how the Chinese state sees itself and how ordinary Chinese people feel, where they're thinking, "Yeah, maybe we're a rising great power, but I'm still just working really hard, struggling to make it. I still feel like a little person in a developing country, and I don't feel like we can spare all this money to help these people from other countries." When you look at it from their perspective, it's a very different point of view. And. In a moment, we're going to hear from Chinese experts who are going to tell us about how the government is aware of the pushback, both from some places in the developing world and from their own Chinese public opinion, and that Xi Jinping has a plan to adapt the Belt and Road to deal with that. But first, we have something to tell our listeners. So the great news is that the Economist is investing in our podcasts, and as part of that, we are launching a new podcast subscription, Economist Podcast Plus. Next month, this is a way for you to support our journalism. And if you sign up early, there is a discount. If you want to keep listening to Drum Tower every week and all of our other podcasts, like Checks and Balance, which is on American politics, or any of our special series, you will need a subscription. If you're already a subscriber to The Economist, thank you. You'll have built-in access to all of our shows. But if you're not a subscriber to the newspaper, you can get Economist Podcast Plus. That subscription will enable us to keep bringing you the shows you already enjoy and many new podcasts that we're working on. And if you sign up for Economist Podcast Plus before October seventeenth, you will get a year-long subscription for half off. It'll cost just a bit more than two dollars a month. To sign up, visit economist.com/podcastsplus. There are links to that and to more information in our show notes. And another big story here in China has been the disappearance of General Li Shangfu, China's defense minister, and that makes him the second Xi Jinping protege to have swiftly vanished from public life. And people are asking, does that mean that there's trouble at the top? If you're a subscriber, you can read our reporting on our website, and if you're not, you can sign up at economist.com/dramaoffer. 
the economy is slowing, money is tight, and it doesn't make sense to be giving so much aid and investment to other countries. What are the party's plans to deal with these concerns? So, Alice, I think the message you're going to see coming out of Beijing is that from now on, the Belt and Road is going to be less about shock and or billions of dollars of money in loans and pouring concrete everywhere. It's going to be much more of a push to set standards and principles and norms for global development and pushing that Chinese model. And I think you could see Xi Jinping starting that move away from just vast amounts of infrastructure spending, even at the fifth anniversary of Belt and Road back in 2018. Listen to the speech that he gave back then. So what Xi is saying here is that over the last few years, the Belt and Road has finished drawing the great outline, but now it needs to focus on the critical points and to do some meticulous carvings and fill in the picture with fine drawings. And basically what he means by this big metaphor is that the Belt and Road overall, you know, with this big grand idea of connectivity, that's already been established. But at this point in 2018, they need to start focusing on doing better projects with higher standards and to make sure that all these investments that they're making are actually going to be sustainable. And it's so interesting that that was the message in 2018. Because remember, at that point, the Chinese economy was still booming away. But China was starting to get worried about whether poor countries could pay back some of those absolutely enormous loans. And they were aware that there was pushback on some of those mega projects, the dams and the, the highways. So they were wanting to talk more about precise, well-chosen projects that might be more affordable and more sustainable. And of course, soon after that, we had the COVID pandemic, and then we had the Russian invasion of Ukraine. And these two huge events really pushed a lot of developing countries into crisis, right? So a lot of them were already in huge debt, often to China for these large infrastructure projects. But now they're really struggling to pay it back and they're asking for relief. And so if the catchphrase at five years was all about, we've had the big picture, now we're going to do the fine brushwork. When Xi Jinping welcomes world leaders to Beijing for the Belt and Road Forum in October, we are going to hear him use this phrase, small and beautiful a lot, because that is the new message. And that's because these small, more local projects, they have a quicker payoff. You're not waiting 20 years to get a return. Locals in places like Laos, where you were, should have more sense of ownership. I spoke to a government advisor who's actually telling the propaganda machine how to sell this to the Chinese public. And he was saying, you need to have some really concrete examples of how good this is for Chinese people. And is China going to do that by looking for partners in the Belt and Road that can share some of the burden of lending? So a really interesting scholar on this is a guy called Wang Yiwei. He's at Renmin University. He runs their School of International Studies, but he's also written a bunch of books about the Belt and Road. He told me that China is absolutely looking at some deep-pocketed friends like Saudi Arabia, who might have trillions of dollars that need to be invested somewhere and maybe helping infrastructure get built as part of the Belt and Road could be just perfect. That's why he thinks it was so important that China really pushed for the Saudis to be allowed to join that BRICS grouping the other day. So he says that maybe 10 years ago, the Belt and Road was about solving China's problems. But now, 10 years in, China is ready to help a whole bunch of partners save the global economy. 
primarily BRI need to solve China problem. Now they need to solve the world problem, globalization problem. Okay, what does Wang Yiwei mean when he says now the Belt and Road is going to solve the globalization problem? So that is part of this really, really strong messaging that we are hearing from officials and well-connected scholars here in Beijing, that the problem with the world economy right now is that countries like America are being really selfish and they are erecting barriers to trade and that China is still trying to defend the idea of free trade and economic development and helping everyone rise, tackling global inequality and that China's model of governance, because it doesn't ask all those difficult questions about what political system you use and what you saw in Laos in our first episode, Alice, where the government of Laos is really happy not to have to answer all those difficult questions about standards and norms and governance, China just kind of gets on and builds, that that is actually going to become the saviour of a global economy that is in danger of dividing apart, and that China is still going to not be the lender for everyone, it's not going to be the builder of everything, but it's going to be pushing new norms and new standards and new ideas of how the world order should work. And we're going to see the Belt and Road, I think, blending in with some of those big global initiatives that we've talked about in other episodes of Drum Tower, like the Global Development Initiative. Yeah, and we've been seeing Xi Jinping announce those new normative initiatives one by one, right? The Global Development Initiative, Xi Jinping made a big speech about it in 2021 at the UN General so here Xi Jinping is saying development holds the keys of people's well-being. We're facing the severe shocks of COVID-19, so we all need to work together and steer global development toward a new stage of balanced, coordinated, and inclusive growth. And to this end, I would like to propose a global development initiative. So, David, I mean, it's a lot of very fuzzy language. And I remember when he first made the speech, a lot of China watchers were wondering, like, what is he really saying? But over time, especially as Xi Jinping launches other initiatives like the Global Security Initiative, the Global Civilization Initiative, it's become clearer that these initiatives are really about a much more normative approach to China's engagement with the developing world. That's right. So as so often with China, the words seem incredibly benign, even frankly, a little boring. But actually, there is a very serious ambition behind them. This is all code. And what is the code saying consistently? It is that America and the rich world and the West have had their day of being the people who write the rules for world trade, for deciding who is a democracy, what is a good government, China is increasingly open about saying that that whole world where the West sets the standards is over and that China is going to save the world by being this non-judgmental, inclusive partner that doesn't ask too many questions. And that model is actually morally superior and is going to put economic development ahead of fussing about free press or human rights or free speech. And this is a big challenge. And I think one way of understanding where we are right now is that the projects of the Belt and Road are getting smaller, but it is now linked to much bigger geopolitical ambitions. And you can see how China is inserting those 
political norms into the Belt and Road, also in some of the actual projects that it's doing. If you look closely at Belt and Road cooperation, you'll see that there is an increasing number of police trainings, security cooperation. There's a lot of talk about a move to the new digital Silk Road, which means Chinese investments in building tech infrastructure. And that also has to do with China shaping the standards and norms of the technology we use in the future. But it also means China sending facial recognition technology, surveillance cameras to countries that want them and making that point again that, hey, yeah, take this, use it. We're not going to pressure you to have any particular kind of political system, but we do have tools for our type of authoritarian system and we're happy to export them. And Alice, you know, if it sounds as if we're just kind of sniping at China because China's now got a slowing economy, so why are we accusing China of all these wicked things? Actually, you look at what China is currently saying about the Belt and Road And it's talking about all of these things. It's talking about the right way to run the internet is that sovereign states should have the right to decide what is safe content and what is not. And that American idea of the internet being a completely free, uncensored space is absolutely the wrong way to run the world. And China is binding that into the Belt and Road and the digital Silk Road you just talked about. So it's less China pushing to build the next airport, the next enormous dam. It's much more China wanting to set the standards the rules and principles on which the future economy of the world is run. And this is happening at a really opportune time because so many developing countries are really in crisis. They're struggling with domestic instability, with climate change, and a lot of them are very skeptical of U.S. leadership. Xi Jinping wants the developing world to look to China. China can provide a model for how to get through the chaos and develop and be rich and be strong. So Alice, it's really worth devoting two episodes to the Belt and Road 10 years in, because so much foreign commentary has been this mixture of panic or complacency about what it is and what it means. And of course, the truth is somewhere in between. It isn't a plan for world domination, but it's also not just about infrastructure. And it isn't becoming so unpopular all around the world that China is going to have to abandon it and pretend it never happened. But it's changing into something much more about China suggesting that it has better ideas about how to link up the poorer and richer countries of the world. And if the West doesn't like some of those Chinese ideas, then it is time for the West to compete and suggest its own plans. And you do see the Americans, the Europeans starting to look at more sort of global infrastructure schemes. And that's a good thing. If that contest leads to more attention to the real needs of developing countries and the kind of projects that are best for them and that they can afford, then that would be a good outcome to this giant geopolitical contest at the 10-year mark of China's Belt and Road. Thank you so much for listening to Drum Tower, and thank you especially to everybody who has emailed us. So a particular hello to Jeff, who listens in Kawasaki in Japan, to Neda, who is in Paris, and to Manos in the Netherlands. Remember, you can always email us at drum at economist.com. And we love receiving all of your emails and messages. One of the best things about making Drum Tower over the past year has been watching this whole community spring to life. But that takes a team of people on our end. The good news is that The Economist is about to make even bigger investments in podcasting. And that is why we're launching a new podcast subscription, Economist Podcasts Plus. And that'll start next month. And to get a podcast subscription half price, 
so $24.50 for the whole year, or about $2 a month, you will need to sign up early via economist.com slash podcasts plus. And the link is in the show notes. Our editor is Poppy Seabag Montefiore. Alicia Burrell, Barkley Bram, and Jie Hao Chen produced this episode. Sound design is by Ting Li Lim, and our music was composed by Jocelyn Tan. The executive producer is Marguerite Howell. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns.